This is the Trey Blocker Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Today, we are very honored to have in our studio my good friend, Corey Morrow. Corey is a world-renowned musician, singer-songwriter, and we're very grateful to have him in the studio. So thanks, Corey. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I like that world-renowned. That sounds good. <laughs> I think it's great. I'll take that. And well-deserved as well. We are going to do something a little different on this show. We're in the middle of a legislative session, so we've been talking a lot about tax reform and school finance and teacher pay raises and all these really important things, which- Sounds important. Maybe you have an opinion on, maybe you don't, but it really doesn't matter because that's not what what we're here to talk about. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is to talk about you. You have lived an amazing life. You've had an amazing career. It is not over. You are still going and the trajectory is strong and your direction is even stronger in my opinion. Uh, and that's what I want to talk about. So beautiful. Thanks again for coming on the show. <laughs> I'm in. Let's do that. So Corey, I was looking at your bio and this is on your website, so I don't think you can get offended at me for reading this unless you haven't looked at your website lately. That's a, that's a real possibility, <laughs> actually. It says, Corey Morrow didn't become a Texas legend by being quiet. He sings about strippers and Jesus with equal fervor. While this dichotomy may leave those on either side of the moral equator perplexed, the answer is actually very simple. Corey Morrow is beautifully and uncomfortably transparent. From the beer-soaked cocaine-laden days of his early career to today's more sober and spiritual leg of the journey, one thing about Morrow has never changed. As goes Corey's life, goes Corey's songs. That sound pretty accurate? I feel like I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you did. No. So just that gives us a whole lot of things to talk about. And let's start at the beginning. You were born and raised in Houston, Texas. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. My parents divorced when I was about two years old. I lived with my mom in Houston. I got to see my dad on the weekends. He lived in San Antonio, so he'd come in every other weekend. So he'd come in on Friday from San Antonio. I think that was back then, 55 miles an hour. <laughs> took a while, right. and he lived on the west side of San Antonio. So it was about a four-hour trip each way. And so Friday, he'd pick us up and take us back to his house. Sunday, he'd take us back to Houston back, and then that was every other weekend. So we didn't get a whole lot of quality time with Dad. It was mainly that one Saturday, twice a month. And um, so whenever we were with him, we did a lot of fun stuff, and it was more like we were buddies. Right. And so the whole Dad thing, you know, I didn't get a whole lot of opportunities to talk to him about girls and things like that as I was growing up it just sort of we just sort of figured that part out but mm -hmm. I grew up with um, mainly with, with my mom in Houston with my stepdad and uh, my two older sisters that environment was a little bit uh, not ideal I like that. no no leave it to beaver in, in your childhood does anybody even know that reference anymore I'm probably not yeah. I'm probably, you know, I just aged myself yeah so my stepdad he was kind of a, of a bit of a carouser, and so he liked to go to the strip clubs. He used to do uh, pretty hard drugs. He, he did like to smoke uh, a lot of marijuana, and he drank quite a bit. And so my memories growing up, uh, they got married when I was about 11, but he started coming around when I was about 9. And so my memories in that, you know, it's a pretty uh, impressionable time of your life. Sure. Trying to figure out what's going on with your body and what, what you're supposed to be doing in life and who you are and what what it all means and uh, I was always kind of a pensive kid I was always a deep thinker and um, was always 
asking those questions, trying to find the answers to it all. But stepdad and his friends were kind of going off on this party, basically. It was uh, finding happiness at all costs. Right. Um, money, uh, fame, uh, success. All these things were really important uh, to him and to his friends. And I remember conversations with him saying, you know, that he wanted to be like his friends who had ranches and all this money and horses. And, and so, you know, I'm sitting back kind of watching and realizing maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. He and I actually didn't like each other very much. We kind of butted heads, but he was kind of the only influence around. So so did you get over that at some point? I mean, I, I can imagine having a stepdad come into your life as a young male is hard on anybody, but was there a point at which you really did kind of connect or did that never happen? Not on a very deep level. We actually were in therapy together uh, at some point. And uh, therapy was kind of a big deal in our family. I was seeing a therapist, I think by the time I was nine years old, my mom, my stepdad, everybody. It was a big, you know, therapy family. Of course, it was the 80s, so that made sense. Right. We never did really, really deeply connect. We kind of got to the point where we were like, we're okay with each other. And, and we liked each other, but it was, uh, it was just one of these things. He always thought I was a mama's boy. And I was, you know, I was my mom's baby and I was her only boy. Sure. And um, she kind of treated me special. And I see that now. He was basically an overgrown child. And so you got two overgrown children in the house that are trying to, uh, you know, trying to win mom's affection. Right. And be the number one man in the house. And so it didn't make for a good uh, uh, relationship. But we got along. I moved out uh, and went to college to Texas Tech. And, um, you know, when I got there, I kind of found out about music like Robert Earl Keane and Steve Earle and, and Lyle Lovett and started chasing down J. Jeff Walker and guys like that. Right. And we started going to see concerts and all my fraternity brothers were really into Robert Earl. And, and I was like, OK, what's I've never heard of this guy. Right. But they all they they, they put his music on and they're all singing the words. And there's like 20 of them. And I'm like, I've never seen anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it really, it really caught my eye and got my attention. Along the way, you know, I kind of decided that uh, I had picked up the guitar when I was about 14 or 15, started okay. playing through high school. So I had a, you know, an ability to play and took lessons, and but they weren't able to figure out like a three chord song. They were listening to it and they're trying to figure out what it was. And I grabbed the guitar from them and I was like, it's, you know, it's these three here chords. Is. Here it is. And they go, they looked at me like I had just discovered fire. You know, <laughs> like, how did you do that? And I'm going, wait a second here, three chords. Some good lyrics right. and a half decent voice. Like, uh-huh. I don't, I don't have the last two, but <laughs> I can do the three chords. And I was like, maybe I give this sh- a shot. Didn't like going to class, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do there anyway. Sure. Mom kind of had me in the business school, and so I was doing whatever uh, she kind of was directing. So I wasn't doing too well. Right. I was in the fraternity, and eventually I just kind of came to the point that I said, you know, I think I'm going to try this. Well, so most guys I know, especially when I was in college, who picked up the guitar and learned to play, did so because they thought they were going to impress the ladies. That was an enormous part of it. Yes. I didn't really have a lot of success, so to speak, with the ladies in high school and um, was was very shy and, and unsure of myself when it came to that department. Um, my mom and my, my sisters had taught me to, you know, to treat ladies with respect and, and to, you know, uh, open the door and do all that chivalrous stuff. But um, I had pretty much put them on a pedestal and mm. idolized women and um, came to the point where I objectified them just because of the way that my stepdad had kind of shown me and, right. and what I had seen. And so there's this whole playboy um, 
attitude. The playing of the guitar definitely led to girls paying attention and getting phone numbers, and and so that whole road started uh, when I quit school and moved to Austin. And um, so at that at that point, when you quit school, you decided I'm going to try to make this a full time full time gig. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I had. I had about five semesters in and was beginning to kind of like lose uh, some steam. You know, I had written a couple of songs. My fraternity brothers told me that they were pretty good. I met Pat Green at that time, and and he and I kind of just started writing songs and trying this thing out. And right. We had our, our first gig together, and it went well, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I took off for Austin and uh, actually played right over here at the uh, cloakroom uh, for one of my Did you first really? gigs. Oh, yeah. Which, for, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the cloakroom, it's about the size of a closet, a large closet. So. Not clearly as big as this entire room. <laughs> no. So, a, a packed house? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> they give you the off days, and you make tips only. And oh, so nice. uh, there were nights when I made $0 and nights when I made $3. Then she also owned the bar, O'Henry's Back 40. Mm. And uh, so that was kind of where things picked up. But, um, you know, girls started paying attention. Gigs started coming in and we started forming a band. And, and the more I got into it, the, the better it got. I was playing around the fraternity houses and we started getting shows at, at A&M and different colleges. And it just started picking up. And the more that the women paid attention, um, the more I kind of got into that and started really taking advantage of that and started uh, drinking more and getting into doing drugs and kind of living that party lifestyle, you know. I read Willie Nelson's book, uh, his autobiography at the time, and I had, you know, watched uh, uh, videos and, and, and heard stories about Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and the life that they lived and the things that they'd done, and I thought those kind of were my heroes. That's and, how you're supposed to do it. Right, that's what you're supposed to do. And no, there's nobody really telling me at this time that there is a, a better way. I knew about Jesus, I knew about God. You know, I hadn't really grown up in the church, but uh, my mom, sort of put me in places where Jesus and God were were uh, present. Uh, she would send me over to my buddy's house, uh, always let me spend the night on Saturday nights when I was a kid, and right. at my friends who, uh, they always went to church on Sunday. So I'd spend the night at his house, we'd always go to church. And, you know, I'm kind of watching this and trying to figure it out, and I'd talk to his dad, but his dad didn't feel, you know, like he needed was able to really share too much or step <laughs> in too much. He'd be like, yeah, this is what this is, and... And, uh, you know, if it's something you want to do, then you, you should talk with your parents about it, you know. Right. And um, I went to a, a youth camp out in uh, Kerrville in that area. And I actually accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 14. But I didn't really know what it meant. You know, I came right. home and, and was like, hey, Mom, I accepted Jesus into my life. She's like, that's awesome. Go take out the trash. <laughs> and um, so that that didn't really take. But the seed was planted, Right. Right. Bought ourselves a broke down, worn out, beat up mess of a home. All the walls are falling down, but the foundation's strong. Well, the first time that I saw her, I went straight down to the bank. All my friends said I was crazy, but I don't care what they think. There's something in the wind like a whisper in my ear It's calling in a voice only I could hear Saying take me and break me down Oh, build me up like new Cause I'm a wreck, I'm a mess, I'm a worn out shell If you don't think my best days are through 
I just didn't know what I was doing with my life. And my career was, was kind of not doing exactly what I wanted it to. I still had to work a day job. And I was mad at myself about that. And I just didn't have a good grounding for what I needed to be doing with my life. Everything was, was the next best thing. And I'd set these goals up. And then if I reached them, great. If I didn't reach them, I'd beat myself up. Right. So I just had an unrealistic uh, view of what life was really all about. And so I, I kept coming home, you know, hammered from the bars. And one night I came home and I was just a total wreck. And, um, you know, I called my sister in the middle of the night and she kind of talked me down. And uh, then the next day I went to Houston and we went and, you know, tried to do something about it. It was it was helpful, kind of kind of resetting. But the, uh, the, you know, the old ways kept kicking back in. I'd quit drinking for a little while, but then I started back up. As soon as I started drinking again, we'd start back into the drugs and chasing the women and, and the whole thing would start all over again. So which would be relatively easy to do, given your career choice. Right. That's another big point. I think I, I put myself into a position where people are always telling you how great you are and they're and they're they're constantly giving you adoration and praise and and so you want to live up to this expectation that you think they have of you and you think that's important too what people think of you is important it was hugely important my insecurities were were growing and growing so all of these things led me to realize that you know i had an addiction to to the drugs but i also had an addiction to the lifestyle and and they would start to feed on themselves and um it was a big mess. And uh, after a couple of years later, maybe several years later, as things started to really pick up, we, we started uh, to get some success, more success with the business, with the band. And we had some sponsorships and we had a deal with Budweiser and, and Dodge dealership. And things were really starting to kind of take off. Right. And I had a nice big condo on the lake and I, and I was driving the Porsche that I always wanted. And I got arrested one night coming home from the bars in Austin, um, zooming up. Uh, Mopac at three in the morning um, doing 120 miles an hour mm. and I used to do that a lot I used to drive as fast as I could in the middle of the night and just sort of like take my hands off the steering wheel and close my eyes and say if you're up there you know prove it right and I would tempt God before any of this stuff had happened I sat down and I, I knew that there was something wrong and I wrote this song uh, foreshadowing my own demise This way forever and a day. I want to feel this way, and I don't want it to change. Can you help me, son? I got a problem to fulfill. Oh, I got a demon inside me. It won't let me stand still Won't be long now Won't be nothing left to hide I'm taking classes I learn to speak and look tall Yeah, but nobody here's learned Read the writing on the wall And I take my chances I'm on a gamble with my heart Oh, and if I lose I'll just 
wish upon a different star Somewhere down the line I lost my way And hurt my pride Won't be long now Won't be nothing left to hide Talking circles Don't even understand themselves Yeah, but they got an offer And I got a stack of unpaid bills And I'm on a highway Somewhere south of your hometown Oh, and the whistles are blowing Ghosts are running on the ground Somewhere down the line I lost my way And there's nobody here left to blame Except me and this face That I can't hide It won't be long won't be nothing left to hide It won't be long now Won't be nothing left to hide I wanna feel this way Forever and a day I got arrested. There was uh, they they were, it was a DWI in possession of cocaine, and that was kind of that was kind of a big pivotal point. Um, I lost all my sponsorships, lost a lot of shows, self-respect, my business. I almost bankrupted uh, after that because just everything just sort of fell apart. My band that was a, that was a hard thing to keep going as well. Uh, How old were you at this point? So that was about oh four oh five, um, probably thirty two something like that. I think right. It'd been a few years, and you know, I'd had other incidences. I uh, wrecked one of my cars, totaled it in, uh, in the early morning hours because I'd been up all night. And um, uh, my my best friend at the time was was in the car with me, and uh, you know, almost mm-hmm. killed the two of us. And um, you know, through the years after that, that our, our friendship has has really diminished, and we don't really talk much anymore. At, after that. Uh, that big arrest and you know it hit uh, the Associated Press somebody said they'd seen it on TV and and so I got a lot of good publicity from it uh, but it was not the right kind of publicity right. and um, you know I kind of had it in my head I need to I really need to get it together right and uh, along the way I think one of the things that was a, a false belief was that if I found the right girl that that the right girl would help me get my life together. Again, not really knowing the truth about Christ, the truth about God, the truth about uh, a life lived in that way, following Him and understanding Him and knowing who He was and, and the kind of love that you, you can have from, from Him and that, that your life has purpose with Him. Um, not knowing any of those things, I'm just trying to set things up myself. And so I've started creating these, 
these uh, places that I want to get to, these goals that I want to achieve. And so thinking that the right girl is going to do it, I met my wife. You thought that that would make you happy, that would solve all your issues? Yeah, I met my wife uh, about six months after the arrest. And um, I knew when I met her, like, that she was going to be the one that, that I was going to marry. And, and I was, like, thinking to myself, she's the one that's going to fix all these things, right? Right. She's going to show me who Jesus is, and she's going to she's going to help me get my my act together, and um, and that's quite the burden to put on her. It's a little bit uh, of an unrealistic and, and um, unfair pressure to put on anybody right. to put them up and, and say that you're going to you're going to handle all this for me. But you know, she was the one, and uh, the the cool thing, at least I thought it was cool at the time, was that she didn't know anything about my arrest. She didn't know anything about my career. She'd never heard of me. Had she been living under a rock yeah, or Canada I, or she? <laughs> Nacogdoches. Uh, so, gotcha. Behind the pine curtain. Uh, yeah, she had uh, been to a Roger Craig concert, and I, I think she'd actually been to one of my concerts, but just you know, she wasn't in the scene, and so that was kind of a, a, an opportunity to start over. And you know, and I, I had always felt like there was this this me that wasn't getting out, that I was trying to be all of this for everybody, and and trying to achieve all these these things to make me happy that the real me was somewhere in there and that it was you know untapped right and so i started imagining what that would look like and that's the person that i presented to her i was uh, nice i was a gentleman like my mom taught me how to be and i was trying to take care of my business and and be professional and you know i showed her that i really wanted to know about jesus her and her family she, she was raised in it and so she knew the right way to live and she was very um knowledgeable you know, I was trying to go that direction and tell her this is, you know, I want to, I want to learn more about what you know and right. tell her parents the same thing. And so, and I did, man, I put my best foot forward and, and, you know, and that's, that's who she saw, she saw. And so that's who she married. And, um, and for a while I was able to, to maintain that, you know, that persona. Uh, but Cause at this point it was an act. Would you, would you call it that? Yeah, to some degree for sure. But a genuine attempt, nonetheless. I think that that's to, to, for for me. It was it was a uh, it was what I thought was possible, mm-hmm. uh, but it was me trying to make the attempt on my own and not knowing how to really keep it keep it going. Um, not really having anything that I'm grounded in, uh, except for a lot of failures and and a lot of uh, self deprecation and a lot of just shame and guilt that I walked in um, and and a lot of secrets. I hid a lot of stuff so. The person that she fell in love with was there was there was a lot of me in it, but there was a lot of me that she didn't know that I that I didn't fill her in on. And um, so, you know, as we get going in our marriage, uh, some of that those old ways uh, start coming back in. And uh, there came a point where, you know, it all uh, came to the table. And um, there was a day where, you know, she came to me and said, you know, you need to tell me the truth. I'll give you an opportunity to tell me the truth. Um, and if you, uh, if you do, if you tell me the truth, then we'll have a chance. Our marriage will have a chance. And um, So I assume at this point you were on the road a lot, had fallen back into the old ways, yeah. and, and eventually she figured that out. She's exactly. a smart woman. Exactly. Um, and, you know, there were, there were a lot of factors at play, but uh, I'll get to that in a minute, but Essentially, I'm sitting here at the table and I'm like, you know, how do I get out of this? How do I lie my way out of this? And um, there was just, my mind was 
going crazy and I'm thinking to myself, I have a history of divorce. Um, my, my parents divorced when I was two. My, my dad remarried and then divorced again when I was about uh, 12, 13 years old. And then he remarried for a third time. His parents divorced when I was like two years old or one and a half years old. So it's just, it was just all over the place. And I had this sort of like commitment to myself that I was never gonna get divorced. That that was just, I'm gonna find the right woman and if I find the right woman, you won't have to get divorced. Right. So uh, I'm sitting here at the table thinking, man, I'm, my kids are going to grow up the same way that I did. And I swore, you know, I didn't want to do that. And I'm looking at this woman and I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not being the man that I said I was going to be. And mm-hmm. so um, quite literally, uh, as I'm sitting at the table, there was like a light that came through the ceiling of the house. And, and you know, and I, I felt and heard this voice to, told me to just confess it all to just lay it all out there. And I'm just thinking, you know, there's, there's no way like that ain't going to happen. Cause I assume you figured she'd get up and run. Absolutely. Yeah. She said that we'd have a chance, but I'm thinking there's, there's nobody that's going to stay. Right. And somewhere in all of it, I, I thought, well, I'm going to, if it's going to end, it's going to end with me, you know, being honest and, and setting the record straight.
Tune in to the next episode of the Trey Blocker Show to hear part two of Trey's interview with Corey Morrow.